The views, information, and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the athlete. It's exhilarating to watch an Abby Wambach header. The ball sails toward the goal. A crowd of defenders leap to meet it. Abby leaps the highest. Her head snaps forward, launching the ball to the back of the net. In this game of chicken, Abby rarely flinches. She gets there first, even if that means splitting her head open in the process. Which has actually happened. One time she got her head stapled mid-game and kept playing. Abby throws her body into dangerous spots that might intimidate other players. There was a moment, though, when Abby questioned whether she could be as aggressive on the field as she wanted. It was before the 2015 Women's World Cup, when she found out the games would happen on an artificial surface, field turf, instead of natural grass. Playing on turf, it's like, it's brutal. Underneath, the turf is concrete. People don't understand that. And there's just like a little bit of padding between concrete and you. Abby Wambach says it's especially brutal for a physical player like herself. Every joint that is in your body hurts. Your back hurts, your knees hurt, your ankles hurt, your hips hurt. No World Cup, men's or women's, had ever been played on turf. The women would be the test case, the guinea pigs. And to Abby, the decision seemed sexist. They will never try that with the men. For the men to ever play on turf, every natural grass surface would need to be burned on planet Earth for that to be the case. Other players on the U.S. women's national soccer team felt the same way. As a leader on the team, Abby felt it was her role to speak out against the decision. Abby was always ready to sacrifice her body for the good of the team. But now she had to be a fearless leader off the field. From Nike, this is the Phenom Effect, where athlete stories progress beyond the field of play. As a kid in the 80s and 90s, Abby dreamed of becoming a professional athlete. But back then, she didn't really see examples of women in that role. I dreamt of becoming a six-foot-six black male basketball player who wore the number 23 for the Chicago Bulls. Um, You know, when I was young, young, that that was it. That's like all I knew about sports. Uh, It was Michael Jordan. The Wambach home in Pittsburgh, New York, was crowded. She was one of seven kids, so she had to fight to get a word in. But on the soccer field, Abby got the attention she craved. And she may have overcompensated a little. When I was five and six years old, I mean, my first three soccer games, I scored 27 goals. So (laughs) I know, I mean, it seems ridiculous. And my mom actually asked me, she's like, Abby, why don't you pass the ball more? Why don't you include your teammates? And I matter-of-factly said, well, I don't understand what the problem is. Her raw talent eventually got her a full ride to the University of Florida. Abby led the team to win its first national championship. She was becoming one of the top college players in the country. And one of her coaches was basically like, look, you've got the goods. You can be on the full national team if you wanted. And I said, are you serious? And he's like, yeah, you have so much potential and so much raw talent. 
Um, but you just need to get fit. That was the thing that I struggled with in college. Just like I was lazy and I like to go out with my friends a little bit too much. And, um, you know, I was fit for season, but I would get really unfit for off seasons. So I just put a lot of dedication and time into getting really fit and treating my body and treating my craft as a professional athlete would. Recruiters noticed. In 2001, Abby got invited to play in a training camp with the national team. That was scary as hell. I remember walking into the environment, just basically wanting to pee myself. You know, there was Julie and there was there was Mia and Brandy and Christine Lilly. My gosh. As in Brandy Chastain, Mia Hamm, and Julie Foudy. It was all of them. It was everybody that I had ever grown up watching, you know, and, and everybody that, that became icons in 99. Just two years earlier, these women had won the World Cup against China. That game is legendary. At the time, it was the most watched soccer game in American history. The 99 World Cup win transformed Mia Hamm and her teammates into celebrities, and it opened the door for the creation of the first ever women's pro soccer league. So when Abby walked onto that national team field in 2001, she was among her idols. I just thought, like, I for sure don't belong here. Like, they are good soccer players, and I'm not even an average soccer player here. I suck. The speed of play was faster. The physicality was was way more than I was expecting. The fitness level that they had, the mindsets. So even though Abby was one of the best college players in the country, the bar was higher, and she had a lot to learn. That was made painfully clear in her first game with the national team in Chicago. My whole family showed up, and uh, they were in the stands, and I was like, I'm never going to play. Like, I'm the worst player here. I shouldn't even be here. Those are the thoughts that I was having, you know. And sure enough, 25 minutes left in the game, April was like, Abby, go warm up. April is April Heinrichs, the coach of the women's national team at the time, and a soccer legend in her own right. She was on the U.S. team that won the first Women's World Cup back in 1991. And I was like, holy cow, this is happening. I'm actually going in. I'm actually going to play for the full women's national team. And it was a nightmare. All I remember is Mia was just yelling at me, like, what are you doing? Stay high! It was as if everything I had ever known or learned about soccer left me. And I was just like running around trying to pick flowers or something. I'm grateful she still talked to me after some of the things I said. But This is Mia Hamm. Abby was one of those players that I didn't necessarily have to think about how I said things. <laughs> um, when you're in the heat of a game, you can't sit there and go, Hey, Abby, what, what were you thinking? Like, I would just say, Abby, like, pass the ball. And she'd be like, okay. Even though Abby had some self-doubt, Mia saw someone who could work hard. She never cut corners in training sessions. You know, personally, she helped bring back kind of my love of the game. Mia had been battling injuries. She found a new sense of purpose, helping Abby become a better player. You know, she's just one of those personalities that wants to absorb knowledge. And, I mean, she could have easily have been like, whatever, old lady. Mia saw the game slowly, and I, I didn't. She allowed me the opportunity to think ahead, like to think beyond this specific moment. 
Mia taught Abby how to play smarter. They developed an unspoken language on the field. Before Mia launched the ball, before it even left her foot, Abby learned to anticipate where it was going, race to that exact spot, and put the ball into the goal. Scoring goals as a forward is so difficult because you actually have to envision this ball coming in. You gotta envision the the path it's gonna take because you have to put your body at the end of that path. As her timing improved, Abby was lethal. She scored a lot of goals close to the net, almost in the goal box. There are so many goals she scored that it was just sheer courage. Like if I was put in that same position, I would have been like, I don't know about this. The keeper's gonna come out and probably punch me in the head. Mia wanted Abby to channel that six-year-old kid who scored all the goals and didn't pass the ball, the one her mom thought might be a problem. Mia gave Abby confidence in her strength, and that confidence broke through when they needed it most. The 2004 Olympic Games were in Athens, Greece. Mia and some of the other veterans planned to retire after this tournament. Last beautiful game for Mia Hamm. Julie Foudy, Joy Fawcett, USA, trying to win the gold for them. In the final, they were tied one-to-one with Brazil. The game went into overtime. Gold medal match continues, tied at one. In the 112th minute, Abby put Mia's lessons to work. She knew exactly where she needed to be. Christine Lilly is ready for the corner. Drives it, far side. The ball leaves Christine Lilly's foot from the left corner of the field. It soars across the field to the far right corner of the goal box. Abby is there, in her sweet spot. Perfectly positioned, once again, she leaps above the collision of defenders crowding around her. Headed by Wambach, and Wambach has scored! USA leads! Abby's goal earns them gold. Two to one. So fitting that it's Abby Wambach that scores that winning goal. She's the player that's going to take the torch and carry the United States into the next era. Shortly after the 2004 Olympic Games, Mia retired, and Abby embraced her role as a leader on the field, scoring goal after goal. Abby's will to win is intense. Her teammates tell stories of Abby's over-the-top pregame speeches. She gets so riled up, she loses her words. The thing is, once a player becomes a leader on the field, they inherit new responsibilities. Mia set this example, too. In our world, in our women's national team culture, the most effective change we've found has been done through a unionization and a solidarity. That was one of the most important things that I learned from the women who came before me. Back in 2000, when Abby was still in college, Mia and her teammates went on strike for better pay ahead of the Sydney Olympic Games, refusing to budge until the U.S. Soccer Federation met their terms. When they struck in 2000, they took a massive chance of not going to the Olympics. That was a real concern. Well, what if they take another team and I lose my one chance at playing in the Olympic Games? The strike paid off. They got the fair pay they demanded, and this set a precedent for the women's national team. These women would always speak up for what they're worth. 
And I'll never forget how loud and frustrated the women were, especially Mia. I watched her and I studied her. I learned a great deal from the way that she was in the world. After 14 years of playing professional soccer, Abby's leadership would be put to its biggest test yet. By 2015, Abby had won two Olympic gold medals. She'd broken the world record for the most international goals scored in soccer, more than any woman or man. She was 34 and close to retirement. Despite everything she had accomplished, she was missing one major accolade, the holy grail of soccer, a World Cup win. The Women's World Cup was right around the corner. This tournament would probably be her last shot. There was one problem, though. Field turf. For soccer players, artificial grass can be hard on joints, and it heats up in the sun. We had a woman playing on our team that actually got, like, third-degree burns because the field was 145 degrees. So her cleats melted inside of her shoe, and she got burned because of the field turf. This is where our story began. Abby finds out that her last World Cup would be played on turf. The reaction of our national team, the first reaction is just disappointment. It's like, here we go again, right? We're being put in a less than position for the most important tournament of our lives. You're going to put us on second rate fields. They were not happy. And they were also nervous about the potential consequences of speaking up. You have some players who are fearful that raising your voice would somehow put us in a vulnerable position to disqualify us for the World Cup, to disqualify individual players. So you just, you never knew. You don't know. Are they going to just suspend me? Are they going to find me? Are they going to not let us play? Of course, Abby wanted to win but not at this expense. To accept these conditions would be a major setback for women in the sport. To not hear the arguments and the, the debate from the players, to not even hear us or want to have a conversation about it, was so disrespectful and dismissive. Uh, and the only course of action that we had was to file a lawsuit against FIFA. Soccer's governing body. Abby spearheads a lawsuit against FIFA and also the Canadian Soccer Association, which was hosting the tournament. Female players from all over the world co-signed that lawsuit, like Germany's goalkeeper Nadine Ongerer and Brazilian soccer star Marta. Abby pulls out all the stops. She even persuaded a natural grass company to agree to install grass fields at all of the World Cup venues in Canada. But FIFA wasn't having it. Then Abby flew to FIFA's headquarters in Zurich and met with Jerome Valka, FIFA's number two at the time, hoping to negotiate a solution. And he says, this is before the World Cup. We sat down and he said, you're playing on turf. I would like to know any other issues that you have. So that's how he started this conversation. You are playing on turf and that is final. So it's like hair pulling, frustrating. Despite all of Abby's efforts, lawsuits move slowly. The case wouldn't be resolved until after the World Cup. Either way, they'd have to play on turf, so they dropped the lawsuit. The only thing left to do was to help her team win the World Cup, 
Even though the turf fight didn't go as planned, Abby had left a big impression on her teammates, especially Alex Morgan. She was just extremely strong through it all and was definitely the face of it as well. So if anyone were to bear consequences for something, it you know, it would have been her, but she didn't care because she wanted to do what was right and what was fair. For Alex, Abby defined what it means to be a team captain. She definitely led with her voice. And in that, like, sometimes you wanted her to shut up and sometimes um, it it made you keep going. That extra couple of steps, it made you um, keep wanting to work for your team. And I, I loved that aspect of Abby. In a lot of ways, Abby's relationship with Alex resembled the one Mia had with Abby. Mia encouraged Abby to embrace her strengths and Abby encouraged Alex in the same way. For example, Abby pushed Alex to trust her natural skill, to use her powerful left foot to take shots from tight and risky angles, rather than pass the ball. Everyone kind of would be like, I don't know why she's taking those shots, but Abby was like, that is your bread and butter. Like, I want you to take that shot. Now, Alex scores a lot of goals this way, and keepers are on edge anytime the ball is on her left foot inside the box. Just from playing with Abby, I felt confident. I felt like what I had to offer to the national team was enough. Alex felt a responsibility to Abby and the other players planning to retire after the World Cup, just like Abby felt a responsibility to Julie Foudy, Joy Fawcett, and Mia Hamm to win gold in 2004. And Alex took this seriously. I mean, it just would have been heartbreaking for her not to finish her career with that World Cup win we had to do right by them to to do anything and everything possible to come home with the World Cup title. And it absolutely was for them. And finally, it's go time. June 2015, the Women's World Cup kicks off on turf in Canada. The U.S. team sails through the group stage and into the knockout rounds. There's one hairy moment in the round of 16 game against Colombia, But Alex fires her signature shot from a sharp angled kick and scores, saving her team. The women win their next two games and earn a spot in the final, where they face Japan. The U.S. dominates, scoring four goals in the first 20 minutes. Abby watches from the bench. It felt like the team was going to be able to go on and be just fine without me. And it wasn't an easy decision, but I just, I felt it. This is going to be my last World Cup. This is going to be my last go at at winning a world championship with this team. With 11 minutes left to play, Abby subs into the game and her teammates pass her the captain's armband, a symbol of her leadership on and off the field. They hold on to their lead. The final whistle blows. the U.S. women's national team wins the 2015 World Cup. This win was bigger than the World Cup trophy for Abby. The World Cup happened. It was beautiful. We won. But the lesson to be learned is that no matter what the outcome is, everyone who feels like they are being marginalized or being treated less than has to speak up. They have to because, look, Now we are a few years ahead of the game. Next year is Women's World Cup in France. And are any of those games going to be played on turf? No. 
you? Today, Abby is 38. She's a retiree living on a golf course in South Florida. Completely. I'm stopping everybody. I'm like, how you doing, Fran? How you doing, Eugene? What's up? I'm like bringing down the average age by quite a bit. All those years of being a physical player have come with a cost. I've got toenails that still fall off every once in a while for no freaking reason. Um, I've got arthritis, Achilles tendonitis. I broke my leg, so I have a titanium rod in my left tibia. And living in Florida, when the barometric pressure gets to be a certain place, everything just hurts. The way Abby played demanded the world's attention and respect. It built upon a tradition in U.S. women's soccer of banding together for the greater good of the sport. And it continues today with players like Alex Morgan. In what Abby did, in what Mia did, and what all these amazing women did on the national team in these last 25, 35 years was just continue to break barriers and show that this national team is one to ask questions, is one to ask for more and do more and force people to pay attention to us. Now these women show up everywhere, in posters, movies, they're animated in video games, giving young girls a reason to dream big. If it weren't for players like Mia, or April Heinrichs, or women that I could see, how would I know what there is out there? There has to be representation, and women have to be given the chance. I believe deeply that it's going to be the reason and the thing that changes our world for the better, is more women in positions of power making decisions for the future of our world. Next week on The Phenom Effect, we'll hear from skateboarder Lacey Baker. I was seeing success around me for those who present like more feminine and like I'm not, so I don't get what they get. Lacey Baker on what it takes to win when you feel like you don't fit in. This podcast is a production of Nike. You can find The Phenom Effect on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe and let us know what you think by leaving a review. This episode was produced by Emily Foreman, with help from producers Megan Kunane, Bradley Campbell, and James Green. Research by Andrew Helms. Abby Ruzika is our senior producer, and Andrea B. Scott is our editor, with help from Renita Jablonski and Rachel Ward. Mix and sound design by Zach Schmidt, with additional mixing by Keegan Zemma. Special thanks to Daniel Pritchard. Executive Creative Direction by Amber Rushton. Our theme music is by Claus. If you liked Abby's story, keep up with her on Instagram, at Abby Wambach. Thanks for listening. 